Radio. This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. There is no such thing as a typical day for a wildlife biologist, especially for one whose office is Grand Canyon National Park. The day's agenda might find you discouraging a bobcat kitten from entertaining hikers along Bright Angel Trail, or studying Mexican spotted owls deep in the canyon, or helping native fish species reach recovery in the waters of the Colorado River, or leading volunteers in conducting a count of the elk population on the South Rim. In this episode of On the Road with Mac and Molly, we'll hear from Grand Canyon wildlife biologist Janice Stroud-Settles about how she entered the field, the challenges she faces each day, and the joys that have been hers through a career that's kept her in the wild. Janice will join us when we return from these commercial messages. We'll be right back after this pause. Sit. Stay. We'll be right back after a short pause. Take a bite out of your competition. Advertise your business with an ad in Pet Life Radio podcasts and radio shows. There is no other pet-related media that is as large and reaches more pet parents and pet lovers than Pet Life Radio. With over 7 million monthly listeners, Pet Life Radio podcasts are available on all major podcast platforms. And our live radio stream goes out to over 250 million subscribers on iHeartRadio, Odyssey, TuneIn, Stitcher, and other streaming apps. For more information on how you can advertise on the number one pet podcast and radio network, visit PetLifeRadio.com slash advertise today. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Pet Life Radio's On the Road with Mac and Molly. I'm your host, Donna Haleson, and with us today is Janice Stroud-Settles, wildlife biologist at Grand Canyon National Park. Well, before the break, we noted that our focus in this second part of a two-part conversation with Janice will be centered on the California condor and the Mexican spotted owl. So, Janice, why don't we start with the condor? It's the largest bird in North America, and drastic measures have been taken to bring the species back from the brink of extinction. What is their story? And perhaps we might start with a word picture of the California condor. Sure. They have quite a story, for sure. It's quite interesting. Yes, so the California condor is the largest bird in North America. To try to give you a picture of what these birds look like, they have a wingspan. So if their wings are all spread out, they have a wingspan of about nine and a half feet. And they stand about four to four and a half feet tall. And they typically weigh between 17 and 26 pounds. So really, this is huge for a bird. Most people know what a bald eagle looks like. A bald eagle, its wingspan is around six and a half feet. So the condor has a three-foot longer wingspan. So absolutely huge bird. They are mostly black. They do have a little bit of white on their underwing. It kind of forms a triangle on the leading edge of their wing. And they have this 
orangey red pinkish head when they're adults, which actually is really cool that they change color when they have different emotions, which is a pretty interesting thing. Younger condors, so if they're generally five years or younger, they have a black head. They often are confused with uh, vultures, but you can distinguish them from vultures if, you know, if you're flying. A vulture kind of looks like a capital letter T, so their wings and their head kind of merge together, whereas a condor looks like a lower letter T. So the condor's head's kind of more stick out when they're flying from their wings. Their story, oh, it is definitely a long, long story. They've had a long population decline during the 20th century, mostly due to the result of habitat loss, shooting of condors, people would collect their eggs and quill. They also had problems with power line collisions and, of course, problems with uh, lead poisoning. Their population reached a low in 1982, where there was only 22 individuals worldwide. So 22 worldwide, both in captivity and in the wild. It was decided in 1987 that um, it was time to capture the last free-flying condor in California. And this was really controversial for the public. It was really split 50-50, where some people believed that the population was so low that these animals were going to go extinct and we should just let them go extinct. We should not be doing any captures of any more wild birds. We should just let them go. And then there was other people, obviously, that wanted to try to save the species. So, you know, the government decided that they were going to try to save the species. So they brought that last one in from the wild into captivity, and they decided to start a captive breeding program. And this was you know, it was a challenge for them to figure out kind of how to do this. They weren't sure if it was even going to be successful. And chicks, you know, birds, they imprint on people. They imprint on whatever is raising them. So they didn't want that imprinting to happen. They wanted to eventually, you know, do a reintroduction of birds back into the wild. So they didn't want them comfortable around people. So they had to use the condor puppet to help raise these chicks in the zoos. And the condor puppet, you put it on your hand, it looked just like a condor mom and dad and do everything that a condor mom and dad would typically do, including preening the chick or feeding the chick, bringing the chick toys, um, whatever it may be. And this proved very successful. The chicks did not imprint. They learned to grow up as a wild bird, basically, in the zoo. The zoos also realized that they could speed up the reproductive output of condors by having the condors double clutch. So what this means is that they would produce more eggs than they would normally in the wild. In the wild, a condor lays one egg every other year. So a very, very low reproductive rate for a bird. Part of the reason why they have such problems with their, their population numbers. But the zoos realized that if the condor laid the egg, you could remove that egg from them. And the condors think that they lost their egg, so they would reproduce another egg that same year. So the zoos took advantage of this. They took eggs away, would raise those eggs themselves and use the other egg having the condors raise that egg. So they'd get two chicks out of two birds during one year. It proved very successful to help build that population up and a lot faster than it would naturally. So much so that um, in 1992, so 10 years after they started this captive breeding program, they were able to start reintroduction back into California. And then also in Arizona, and starting in 1996. 
And this is where our source of our population in Grand Canyon comes from, is from that reintroduction site that's about 50 miles north of Grand Canyon Village here on the Vermilion Cliffs. What's the gestation period for the condor and where do they nest? Yeah, the gestation period is about 56 days. So the egg is being incubated by both parents for those 56 days. And they nest in Arizona and Utah, they generally nest in caves or cracks or crevices where they can squeeze into and lay an egg. They don't build a nest. They just lay the egg right on the cave floor. In California, where they have some more of the larger sequoia trees, they will occasionally nest in the cavities of those trees. When do the young typically leave the nest and how quickly can they fly? And how soon after birth do they hunt? Oh, that's a great question. So it takes a chick six months before they are ready to leave that nest and take their first flight. You can imagine that first flight. I mean, you're dealing with a chick that has these huge wings and it's never flown. And especially here in Grand Canyon, you see where they nest. They nest in the red wall limestone of the canyon and it is very far off the ground. So they have to make that daring leap forward and put their wings out and Hope for the best that first flight. It's really important for the parents to really choose a good site where they have what we call the porch of a cave. So there's an area that they are able to get out from the cave and really stretch and exercise their wings all during the months prior to that that six-month point where they're able to take that first flight. And for a while, they generally stick and they to the general nesting area. They don't go very far distances. They have to build up strength with their w- wings and experience. So, gosh, they probably do this for another, you know, six months, four months, four to six months, I'd say. They stick around the nest area, and, you know, as time goes on, they go further and further. And, you know, we don't capture these birds, these wild-fledged birds, usually until that following summer. So it takes a full year from when they've been born, basically, before they actually are able to travel that 50 miles up to Vermilion Cliffs, where we have a capture site. And they, the Peregrine Fund, which is ahead of the project up there, they, you know, put out carcasses to kind of bait in the birds, and the birds will land on the carcasses to get some food, and they're able to trap them and then tag them and put trans transmitters on them because every condor in the in the wild in the world has a transmitter on them so we're able to track their movements and their survival and their health and you know it takes them almost almost two years to really start feeding on their own hence why the parents lay an egg every other year because they're taking care of that chick for that long. So really, it's not until that winter before the parents are about to lay another egg until they really start kicking off the older chick saying, you need to send for yourself now. What kind of habitat do they need? And is the canyon a a really good habitat for them? If if it is, why? The canyon is an excellent habitat. It is probably ideal, I'd say, habitat for condors. Condors love rocky and forested regions, gorges, canyons, mountains. And canyon here has it all. We have plenty of canyon, being the Grand Canyon. We have plenty of caves and ledges for them to roost on. But we also have forested plateaus, both on the north and the south side. And in these forests lie, you know, reside um, elk and deer. And in the canyon, we have uh, bighorn sheep. And these are the animals that, you know, when these animals die, condors will feed on those carcasses. So it's, we have both the roosting and the nesting habitat, as well as the food part of that habitat. So we have it all. 
But one of the problems for the condors is that they also feed on animals that have been downed by hunting. I understand that they can fly up to 100, 150 miles in a day, and though there's no hunting in the canyon, they get outside of the park surrounds. And then uh, maybe you can, if you would, tell us what happens to them if they come upon a carcass that has been shot with lead ammunition. Yeah, so this is the issue at hand for condor populations nowadays. Just to, I'll start off with saying this, population are from lead poisoning, 50%. And I, I try to make people understand 50% by saying, what if for humans, 50% of the population were dying of heart disease? That would be extremely bad. People would be very alarmed by that. So 50% from one cause of death is really alarming for us wildlife biologists. And we know what it is. We know it's lead poisoning. We know where the lead is coming from. And it's coming from lead ammunition that hunters use when they go out and do you know, deer hunting or elk hunting. And a lot of the times, you know, especially with large games, you know, hunters will shoot the animal and they go and retrieve it and they gut the animal because that's a lot of the weight of an animal for packing out meat and they'll leave the gut pile in the field. But when a bullet, when a lead bullet hits an animal, it fragments into hundreds and hundreds of tiny, tiny pieces so tiny that you cannot you cannot see it with your bare eye. And condors, of course, are attracted to this free meal, essentially, and they go and they eat and they are eating lots of these lead fragments. And it does not take much. It just takes one little piece for them to get lead poisoning, which is a horrific death. I'm not even going to go into the details of what exactly the animal has to go through, but it, I would not wish it upon anybody, um, let alone an animal. The Arizona Game and Fish Department here in Arizona have really tried to eliminate this problem by making non-lead ammunition, such as copper, more available for hunters on the North Kaibab, where deer hunting is very popular up there. So they try to, you know, give free non-lead ammunition to these hunters and say, please use this. If you don't use this ammunition that we give you, then please bring in your gut piles and you'll be entered into a gut pile raffle, basically, and they can win many cool prizes. And if even then, they still explain and they educate to hunters, like, your small act has such a large um, implication for wildlife populations. So even if you don't want to do use our bullets or even if you don't want to bring in your gut pile, if you just bury your gut pile, it will be such a huge conservation issue for, for wildlife. And fortunately, Arizona hunters have really been great in cooperating. They have truly have really showed what, hunters should be like. They are conservationists at the heart. And we have, I think the number is around in the high 80s, almost 90% cooperation from the hunters who get hunts in this area do cooperate and they support this program. In Utah, since a lot of the birds are now heading up into Utah, Utah is trying to duplicate this program and, and they're hoping to get the same success rate, but they're still early on in the in running this program and getting the support from the hunters. I do want to say, though, you know, a lot of people think about lead and lead poisoning and this whole lead ammunition issue as just a condor problem. And I really emphasize when I talk to the public who come here to Grand Canyon that are from around the world, I said this lead poisoning issue is not 
just a problem here in Grand Canyon or Arizona, Utah or California. It is a worldwide problem of these scavengers eating carcasses that have been killed with lead and dying of lead poisoning. It's, you know, lead is used around the world. It's not just here and it's not just condors. You know, eagles have the same problem, ravens, coyotes, you name it. There is definitely a lead issue. Well, I know that visitors and residents like me here in the canyon are are so thrilled to see condors flying overhead. It is just a delight and uh, to see them also perched on the ledges below the South Rim. What do you think it is that uh, so captivates people about the condors? Oh, I think it's a couple things. You know, I think visitors are really ecstatic to see condors fly overhead or even perch below the rim is because just because they're so large, their sheer size, like nowhere in the world really do you really see a bird this big flying. So, I mean, I still catch myself when I go out and I'm lucky enough to have a condor fly right overhead that my mouth will just drop open like, oh my gosh, it's very prehistoric and they are prehistoric birds. So it's, you kind of feel like you're living back in the prehistoric historic times when you see one. I also think that they're very charismatic birds. I mean, they're, they have personalities. And I think if you watch them long enough, you start to pick up on their personalities and you start to nickname them or whatnot. They're part of people's fascinations with condors is the history of them. The story I explained about them being near to extinction, basically, and the whole comeback story of them. So to see this animal that created such controversy in the 1980s and to see the success of that breeding program. Still, we have a long way to go. Again, there's only 439 birds right now in the world, both in zoos and in the wild, and only 72 in Arizona and Utah. So we still have a long way to go, but I think it's still a great story to tell that, you know, with a little work and a little effort and help from people such as hunters, like we, we could be very successful with this bird. Do you have a favorite condor or a favorite story about one or more of the condors? Oh, I do have a favorite condor, and unfortunately, he died this summer. I don't know of what he died of quite yet. They're still doing tests. This was Condor 234. He was a great dad. He was a dad to several chicks over the past few years, the last one being last year, and that chick is still around and traveling all around the South Rim. We see her occasionally. But he just always was there for that chick last year. Every time I go out to go see the chick in the cave, 234 would be there feeding her. I remember right after the chick fledged last year, unfortunately, you know, this happens in November. In November, we can get weird weather coming in the canyon. So the chick fledged two days later, a big storm blew in, big snowstorm. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the worst time for this bird that is trying to learn how to fly to be out there in the snowstorm. And so I went out and I'm trying to see the chick through like the snow and the fog. And I didn't see the chick, but I saw 234 flying in this horrible storm right into where the canyon wall where that chick was and it was was staying with the chick through that storm so I gave him a lot of credit for doing that. Is there anything else that uh, you think is important for us to know about the California condors before we turn to the Mexican spotted owls? 
Um, you know, the only thing I want to say is with this reintroduction, there has been a lot of cooperation from many different organizations. So, you know, Grand Canyon plays such a small part in this whole bigger project of bringing back the condor. And you're dealing with state agencies. So, you know, Arizona Game of Fish and Utah Department of Natural Resources, the Bureau of Land Management, the Forest Service, many of the tribes, the Peregrine Fund are huge. They're the ones that are operating and leading the effort of reintroduction here in Arizona and Utah. And then the zoos, too. You have the LA Zoo, San Diego Zoo, Oregon Zoo, Phoenix Zoo. All of them are helping with the captive breeding as well as helping with lead poisoning cases. Well, let's take a break. And when we return, as promised, we'll turn to Mexican spotted owls. So please, folks, sit, stay. We'll be right back. After this, pause. Sit. Stay. We'll be right back after a short pause. Molly, here's your dinner. (coughs) Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your Cat Tree Tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. We're back, and you're listening to On the Road with Mac and Molly on the Pet Life Radio Network. Joining us today is Janice Stroud Settles, wildlife biologist at Grand Canyon National Park. Well, Janice, before the break, as I said, we've been focusing on the California condor and would love to turn to the Mexican spotted owl. As we did then, can you tell us some of their story? Oh, Mexican spotted owls. I would advise anybody who doesn't know what they look like to type it into the Internet and look at a picture of these guys. They are gorgeous owls. They're sort of a medium-sized owl, so not really big, but they're not really small. They have these gorgeous, beautiful, dark, chocolatey eyes, which is not like most owls. Most owls have yellow to red eyes, so they just have beautiful, beautiful eyes. And of course, being spotted with the white spots on their brown feathers, it's it's absolutely a gorgeous bird. They typically are known to live in old growth forest. The Mexican spotted owl is a subspecies of spotted owls. So a lot of people, when they think spotted owls, they think of the northern spotted owls and all the controversy that has occurred up in Oregon in Washington with the logging of the old growth forest. So this Mexican spotted owl is, is, is just a subspecies of, of that. There's also the California spotted owl. So the northern spotted owl and the Mexican spotted owl are both on the endangered species list. The Mexican spotted owl is pretty special here in Grand Canyon because they don't live in old growth forests like they typically are known for. They actually live in the canyon itself, in these all these side canyons or 
uh, along the main drainage of the canyon, they tuck themselves way up into the red wall in these narrow drainages that they create microhabitats. Or just they provide just enough cool weather there, and there's enough caves and ledges for them to really get away from the hot part of the summer. It's just amazing what they've been able to do outside of a forest, actually. <laughs> you wouldn't think an owl would live in such a place, but they do. How did they end up here? How do they end up here? Don't know. That's a question that it has yet to be answered. We're not sure, you know, what populations are linked. So south of Grand Canyon, the Mexican spotted owls are generally found in forests. They are typical forest owls. They live in trees. They nest in trees. They just stick to the forest. But everything north of Grand Canyon, all the Mexican spotted owls live in canyons like the Grand Canyon. So we're on this zone of like being like, well, do we have birds coming and going from the forest to Grand Canyon or vice versa? Or are they sticking to just the Grand Canyon? Or are they also traveling just to Utah area and down here? So we are not sure how the populations are related. That's one of the many studies we'd like to do here to try to figure out that question. Will you see them on the north and the south rim, or are they only just deep down into, in the canyon? Yeah, it's very, very unlikely that you actually see them on the rim. They do occasionally pop up onto the rim to forage, but obviously that would be in the middle of the night, so the likelihood of actually seeing one would be very slim. But most of the owls from the park, we have, we have a belief that they stay within the canyon and hunt within the canyon. There is lots and lots of wood rats that they eat in the canyon, and they seem pretty successful in getting enough food and getting enough water by just staying in the canyon, amazingly enough. Now, they're called perch and pounce predators, I believe. And what does that mean? And how soon after birth do they hunt? And what do they hunt? Uh, yeah. So perch and pounce means they don't fly and look for prey and then get it. They actually sit in a tree, maybe a ledge if you're in the canyon, and they wait for something to go below them. So they'll perch and wait and wait. And when they see something, they'll just pounce right on it. So there's not too much flying involved. Maybe you can even backtrack us a little bit and tell us something about how many eggs they would lay in a clutch and, you know, when the young typically leave the nest, how quickly they can fly, how quickly they can hunt. Yeah, sure. A lot of questions there. (laughs) So, you know, I'll just talk a little bit about the reproduction and I'll cover all that. So the the mating season is generally, you know, February to March and and then they gestate the egg for about two months. And the clutch size of the nest is about two to four eggs. And like condors, they don't build nests. They use whatever natural, you know, tree cavities or here in the canyon, they use caves. So they just lay the eggs on the floor of the cave. In Grand Canyon and other canyon habitats, they might also use potholes and and cliff ledges. um, Or maybe they'll use a stick nest built by other birds. The young leave the nest about... 32 to 36 days old, so it doesn't take them very long to leave the nest. And then they'll perch on surrounding branches. And then when they're about three weeks after leaving the nest, the young can use their talons to start to hold and tear prey apart on their own. So they start to learn, the parents will bring them prey and they'll start to learn how to deal with it. And then from there, obviously, they start hunting on them all, on their own. And unfortunately, you know, what we do know, we don't know why quite yet, but the survival rate for the young is pretty low. Part of the reason why they are listed species, their survival rate is just horrible. And they, a lot of the birds, when they leave the nest and they go off to find their own territory, they end up either starving or they get predated upon by other animals. It's a tough world for them once they leave that nest. 
You have a special love, I think, for both the Mexican spotted owls and for the California condors. And how did they kind of snuggle their way into your heart? Yeah, you know, it's not like I had a plan to study them. I came to Grand Canyon and there was a lot of turmoil when I came. A lot of people were leaving here to get new jobs elsewhere. And so when I came, these projects were not mine. Um, They were other people's. And when they left... I was the person that got the projects, and I feel pretty lucky to get them because I have felt fallen in love with both these species. So I think it was just meant to be. And the more and more I learn about them, and when I get to be fortunate enough to actually see them, I'm just like just fascinated by them. And you know, with the owl, there's so many unknowns with this bird because you are dealing with an animal that comes out at night that is tucked back in these far, far, hard to get to places in the canyon that there's just so much that needs to be learned about this. And I think it's it's just fascinating as a wildlife biologist. Well, how can listeners help these precious birds and where can they get more information about them? Well, as I mentioned already, like for condors, I think the biggest thing, because I get this question a lot with condors, how can I help? And I tell people the most you can do for these birds and other wildlife for that matter is to really understand the lead issue and to understand why lead ammunition is bad, what the alternatives are, so to educate yourself with that subject, but then also educate others. So if you have a family member or a friend or a friend of a friend for that matter that hunts, explain to them that issue of like why they should not be using lead ammunition. You know, why is it bad for wildlife populations? Why is it bad for condors? I think that is the biggest thing because I don't think we're not going to get anywhere with this problem until people start understanding and educating themselves about this problem. You know, for Grand Canyon specific for helping these projects, the best source is Grand Canyon Association. They are wonderful for helping the wildlife projects here really be able to run. We we don't get too much money from the government itself. We get very minimal funding to support these projects. So Grand Canyon Association, which has a great website, they are trying to help um, raise money to help these projects keep going. So I encourage you to, you know, visit the website and to check out what the association is all about. Also, the Peregrine Fund, they rely completely off of donation dollars to support the Condor Project. So if it wasn't for people donating and helping, there, there would not be a re- reintroduction in Grand Canyon. If you want to learn more about these birds, you know, I encourage you to visit the Grand Canyon National Park website. There are some links to the nature and science web pages on our and our web pages. And we're in the process of revamping and updating our web pages, but there is a lot of valuable information on Grand Canyon's wildlife. I do provide a quarterly update on condors, including charts that track the whole population, each and every bird, and I try to really mention um, the successes and failures of the current population. And there's also a great book out there um, written by Sophie Osborne on the condors in Canyon Country. I think you can find that at Amazon.com. And I also, for condors, there are so many great documentaries out there on condors and the lead issue. Two of my favorites are called The Condor Shadow, and then the other one is The Scavenger Hunt. So I encourage you to look those up and to uh, watch them. They're really, really educational and some amazing footage. Is there anything else that you want to be certain to uh, mention before we close our time together? No, I really appreciate this time and just to explain all about these special animals. 
Well, thank you, Janice, so much for spending the time with us today for working on this two-part episode of On the Road with Mac and Molly. You work in a national treasure, and really, in my opinion, you are yourself a national treasure. So I want to really thank you on behalf of my listeners and our listeners and myself for all that you do to protect and to improve the lives of the wildlife in your care. And if folks have any questions or comments about today's show, I'd invite you to email me at the address that you'll find in my On the Road blog. And as always, I hope you'll join us next time as we head out on the road with Mac and Molly. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.